I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And we're going to look specifically at verse 51. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. And it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they, the Samaritans, did not receive him because he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. Father, as we consider your word this morning and this moment of time in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see into the the spirit of this scene and this specific time. Help us, as it were, to get into the heart and mind of Jesus and to walk with him in the company of his disciples and to, to feel the change that is taking place in the public ministry. And toward that end, Father, may we be drawn closer to our Lord Jesus Christ to love Him more, but also to have drawn for us with great clarity the meaning of being a follower of Jesus Christ. I ask it for His glory and in His name. Amen. We come to this time of year, and I've uh, I've mentioned this to you before, it's always a challenge as a pastor of the same congregation for many years to you know, get before God and say, what what should I bring to a, a, a time in the church year that is so um, familiar to us all that will be a fresh perspective? We have Christmas every year, and we celebrate the Incarnation, and we have Palm Sunday every year, and we celebrate the Triumphal Entry, and we have Resurrection Sunday every year, and we celebrate the resurrection, and we celebrate the the time with the disciples in the Last Supper on Thursday night, and we celebrate and remember the cross on Friday, and you know, these are things that happen all the time, and yet there's always a, a, a new way to just contemplate this kind of thing. And so I was I was praying that way. Those were the questions in my mind. And a phrase came to mind. He set his face toward Jerusalem. 
and I couldn't shake that phrase. And the more I wrestled with various and sundry other kinds of passages, I kept coming back to that. And I'm thinking to myself, Lord, this really has nothing to do with the triumphal entry. Um, You know, how does this fit into that? And finally, I was just compelled to, to dig into this section in the life of Christ when Luke makes this observation. He set his face resolutely toward Jerusalem and to inquire what were the circumstances that surrounded this moment when Jesus pointed his life and his ministry toward Jerusalem and the cross. Because that really is what is in mind here. Luke actually looks beyond the cross to the ascension and the time of his being taken up. But where Jesus is focusing is in the cross. And this was the beginning in the ministry of Christ of turning to Jerusalem for the specific purpose of dying as the sacrifice for our sin. And so as I explored that more and more, I realized that there there is a, a significant story here for us that we need to see with fresh eyes about what led up to that day when he triumphantly rode into Jerusalem and everyone was hailing him as their hopeful coming king. Let me back up and give you some backdrop into the the public ministry of Christ so you know where this fits. The synoptic gospel writers, we call them the synoptic gospels because they give us a synopsis of the life of Christ and they are considered Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They have a lot of similar material. There are about 600 verses in those three Gospels that are commonly shared. And then Matthew uh, gives us more information relative to his focus as Jesus the Messiah, and Luke gives us some more information uh, relative to his focus. But those first three Gospels are the synoptics. And for the most part, those Gospels give us a quick introduction to the beginning of Christ's ministry, and Luke even goes backward as well as Matthew to give us some, you know, some uh, pedigree and history and how his birth occurred. But we see him baptized by John, we see him going into the wilderness, and then it's as if we kind of leapfrog to the Galilean ministry. And the Synoptic Gospels are primarily concerned with Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. John, who writes some Uh, 40 or so years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, perhaps in order to to fill in the, the gaps by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us more insight into that first year of Jesus' ministry and kind of fills that scene out for us. And so when we put them all together, we we try to form a timeline of the life and ministry of Christ. And what we discover is that the ninth chapter of Luke's Gospel occurs about two years or two and a half years into his public ministry. From the time 
that he took off the apron, laid down the hammer, and left the carpenter shop and appeared at the Jordan River to be baptized by John from that moment until this, about two and a half years have elapsed. There's about one more year of public ministry to occur before the events of this week that we celebrate by remembrance of his entry into Jerusalem and his crucifixion and the resurrection. So here we are, two-thirds of the way into the ministry of Christ. Another significant thing is that what has been going on here is that Jesus has basically been circling around Galilee. Uh, There are at least three different kind of circuits that he has taken through the Galilean region, proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of God has come, and healing the sick, and casting out demons, and restoring sight to the blind. He's been working very many miracles, and marvelous things have been occurring. And basically, the attitude uh, up until now has been one of great rejoicing. He's been well-received. People are excited to have him come. Um, they, they are seeking him out for help. And Jesus is a very, very popular figure. And basically, until this moment, uh, excitement has been building about the potential that this man... Uh, from Galilee may represent. This Is this the coming one? Is this the Messiah that's been promised? Is this the one that's going to finally throw those uh, crazy Romans out of power and restore us to Palestine and give us freedom and living? Is this the one we've been waiting for? That's all the excitement that's generated around him. But there are also the sinister forces that are beginning to influence in certain areas. And before we open the gospel to the ninth chapter of Luke, a couple of strategic things have happened. One of them is that he has brought that fateful message in his hometown of Nazareth and been rejected. You know, they, they finally have kind of scratched their head and said, Who is this? This is jo- Isn't this the carpenter's son, Joseph's son? I mean, who does he think he is? He grew up here. Uh, good grief. And even his family, uh, his brothers and sisters, wondered, you know, who do you think you are? And this is what caused Jesus to, to, to exclaim, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown. That has just occurred as we turn the page and open the ninth chapter of Luke's Gospel. He has been rejected by the very village in, in which he grew up in the synagogue that he spent his, his early years in. In an effort to kind of consolidate the work and begin to solidify those who were his followers throughout the Galilean region. As we open to chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel, we find that Jesus is sending out the twelve. And if you look with me there, he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and perform healing. And he said to them, 
Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, uh, nor bread, nor money, and, and do not even have two tunics apiece. And whatever house you enter, stay there to you take your leave from it. And as uh, for those who do not receive you, as you go out, uh, go out go away from the city and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And departing from him, they began to uh, preach, go about the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, people have an interesting take on Jesus' commissioning of the twelve. Uh, there's, there's different viewpoints as to why he did that. And, and some people say that he was, um, you know, he was letting them practice. He wanted to send them out on a trial journey and give them a chance to, uh, you know, to see what it was like and then come back and work with them a little bit. And then he was sending them out to practice. Um, I, I appreciate uh, Linsky's uh, comments on this passage. He's a conservative Lutheran commentator and really has a lot of insight into to the gospel narratives. And he says um, very clearly, Jesus was not giving his disciples a practice opportunity, nor was he sending them out to prepare the way for him and kind of warm people up. Um, he was sending them out to consolidate the work that he had already been doing because the tide is turning. And it's time to uh, kind of draw the line in the sand and determine who is with me and who is not. You need to make up your mind. And, and I say that because to say it's not that a, a disciple cannot uh, learn from experience. You can always learn from experience. I hope we're always learning from experience. But I want to say that there is no such thing as practice in the kingdom. It's all for real. I mean, it's real ministry. They were going out to do a real job. They weren't practicing on anybody they were going out in the authority of Jesus Christ to confront demons and to confront sickness and to bring healing and to bring deliverance and to uh, solidify in the hearts of those that had been followers that this was indeed their choice. I, I, I go back and some of you have heard the story that when I was in uh, college training for ministry, I refused to take homiletics. Homiletics is the science and methodology of, of preaching. And the reason that I refused to do that was because, and, you know, the, the professors out there that may uh, catch a glimpse of this audio or something, some may have heart, heart failure right about now. But I felt that you could never go into a classroom and practice a sermon. That if you were going to preach... God had given you a message. People needed to uh, put down their uh, paper and pens, not note-taking paper and pens, but critique-taking paper and pens. They needed to stop analyzing and start listening. Because if God had a message you wanted to bring, then they were there to hear the message. And if it was just practice, forget it. it doesn't, it's not going to work for me. I couldn't say two words in front of an audience hardly when God called me to preach, I, I was terrified and tongue-tied and stage fright, and I couldn't get uh, an entire sentence out without uh, gasping for breath and kind of shutting down and having to sit down. 
And when God called me to preach, he quite miraculously changed all that. Uh, much to some of your chagrin, I can now go for at least an hour without uh, wearing out. But, um, you know, the fact is that God had done something and, and he gave me a mission and he gave me a word to speak and it, there was no practice to it. You, we learn as we go, but the point is to get the job done that God has commissioned you to do. And that was the reality with the, with these disciples. They were to go and accomplish a purpose. And the purpose was to go through Galilee where Jesus had spent considerable time. And to go from town to town and village to village, two by two, as we read in some of the other Gospels, two by two, and to proclaim the message of the kingdom and to reinforce it with the authority of deliverance and healing. And in, in doing so, to begin to rally that crowd that would be true followers of Jesus Christ. They were empowered to do this. This is before Pentecost. And it's before the Holy Spirit has come down and and baptized the whole church, but they were empowered specifically for this purpose. And, and as they go out, another thing seems to happen about this time, and you have to, it, it's hard to get the chronology in precise sequence, but somewhere about this time, Herod has John the Baptist beheaded. And, and about the time that the disciples are coming back to report on this, this uh, missionary trip, whether it was days or weeks or even a couple months, we don't know. But about the time they were coming back, Jesus also received word that John the Baptist had been beheaded, that his cousin had, had been killed at the hand of Herod. And things are beginning to heat up. And Jesus calls his disciples as they return it's like, fellas, let's get off to a quiet place and let's debrief. I want to hear what's happened on your journey. I want to hear what you've experienced and what you've seen. And, and I want, uh, you know, I want us to talk about the things that are coming. Uh, we find that in verse 10. When the apostles returned, they gave an account of him of all that they had done. And taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida, and the multitudes were aware of this and followed him. Now, I handed out a map. I don't know how many of you got that. I don't know how many got distributed in the first hour, and, and mine went away somewhere. But um, I handed out a map, and if you look at that, Bethsaida is up on the north tip of the Sea of Galilee. And it's kind of good to get the geography in your mind to see what's happening, because most of the towns and villages of significance are over to the west of the Sea of Galilee, between there and the Mediterranean, up in the north end of Palestine. And that's where Jesus has been working. And they go up to this Bethsaida location on the north, a little bit to the east, where it's tending toward wilderness. And he calls his disciples to this quiet uh, relatively small village away from everybody to spend some time with them. And before they can really get settled, the multitudes have figured out where he's going. 
And before you know it, 5,000 people have gathered to have their sick healed and to hear ministry from Him. And the Scripture says Jesus uh, welcomed them. And you get some real insight into the heart of Christ because John has been killed. His disciples have come back with stories to tell. You know, there's so much that he wants to do with them. And here's the crowd. And he had really wanted to get to a place where they wouldn't be. And now they all are. And, and you know, you'd be like, oh, man. But Jesus instead welcomes them and receives them. That's his heart. Here are the multitudes. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're, they need the teaching. They need the touch. He healed all that came to Him. He never turned anyone on. Teaching and healing and talking. And the day is going on. Finally, they come toward the end of the day. And the disciples say, Look, Lord, I mean, really, we came out here to get away from this. And... It's been going on all day. Send these folks away so they can find some lodging and get some food. And, you know, let's have a break. And Jesus said, um, why don't you give them something to eat? <laughs> you know, and they just kind of look around. And they, There's 5,000 people here. Hello? And we've got food and we don't have very much money. How, how are we going to do that? And it's episode that we have for the first time, the, the feeding of the 5,000. Later on, Jesus kind of does this again. But here it is, 5,000 people. And Jesus says, what do we have? And they have uh, five loaves and two fish. And the Scripture and he takes five loaves of bread and two fish, and he says, uh, Father, I thank you. But art thou, O God, who gives us bread to eat? I thank you. And he blesses the Lord and receives hands it to the disciples, and to their utter amazement. I had to start right there, because there's twelve of them, and there's only seven total pieces. Right there. You know, he takes a loaf and he, he hands it to him. He's still got five in his hand. There's five in his hand. He hands another one. There's five in his hand until he gets, you know, he's gone through seven. And now they start to go. go, 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 go. Okay, and then he takes the fish and same thing. And then they start doing this. All kinds of critics have, have analyzed this passage you know, they've tried to spiritualize it. Well, Jesus is trying to make the point that he was the bread of life. And everybody kind of pulled out their own lunch. They'd been hiding when, or, you know, or one thing and another. It's all kind of stories to try to get around going on here. But when you read the Gospel of John, it happens to be the stories in John, there can be no question. With practically nothing, Jesus was able to feed the entire multitude with real food. 
And the reaction is so obvious in John because all of a sudden the crowds think they won the lottery. You know, three people Friday night got very happy. Their lives They've won the lottery. I mean, this is original welfare a la Jesus Christ. This is incredible. We got all this food out of nothing. And if he can do we're all for this guy. And so, John tells us the behind the scenes kind of leaves out that they show up and they want more. And that's when Jesus begins to drill down. Realize again what's happened in him. Nazareth has, rest, has rejected him. Herod has put John to death. Things are changing in the scene. The Jews are getting fed up, the Jewish leaders. There's some stuff going on behind the scenes that he's aware of. And, and, and the lines are being sand. The crowds are being polarized. The disciples went out, some of the villages received them, some didn't. Not everyone was on board. And now that he has done this miracle of feeding the 5,000, the crowd show up the next day and Jesus is here because I fed you. And the only reason you're here is because you want more. And as long as you are you going to follow the teaching of my Father that I'm giving you? So he said, let me, blasphemy. He said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can't have any part of me. And they said, you're a crazy man. This is blasphemy. You're nuts. We're out of here. Which was the point he was making. This is the moment in the life of Christ when the, the multitudes, now he's standing up there in Bethesda in the wilderness, just him and his disciples. The crowds have dissipated. And he turns to his disciples and he says, How about you? Are you with me or not? Do you want to go? This is your opportunity. It's decision time. And they say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life eternal. He says, Okay. That's your decision. Let's get down to the nitty gritty of what that really means. And so, he brings them, in verse 18, to the point of stating who he is. It came about, verse 18, while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the multitudes say that I am? In other words, you've, you've seen all this stuff going on. Who do the multitudes say I am? And they answered and said, well, some say John the Baptist, uh, others say Elijah, others say one of the prophets of old is risen. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's the scene where in another gospel it's reported that Jesus says to him, Peter... 
Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. My Father has opened your eyes to see the truth of this. And he says, I tell you upon the declaration that you have made, I will build my church, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is also the place where Peter, where he says, and the Son of Man is going to go and be crucified and whatever. Notice that he says that in Luke, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and raised up on the third day. And that's where Peter said, no way, no how. I know this is not going to happen to you. Now, it's interesting to see in this whole passage how they rock back and forth between amazing faith and, and, and total ignorance. Or, or amazing commitment and total self-centeredness. It's, it's, it's interesting to watch their, you know, their, their vacillation here. And that's where Jesus uh, says those words, Get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. But he was saying to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but the one that loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory and the glory of his Father and the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now Jesus is beginning to talk about discipleship in no uncertain terms. And in the course of that, he makes it very clear what the cost is going to be. You need to deny yourself, take up your cross daily. You need to follow me. This is the moment of decision. You've seen the crowds. You saw what happened when you went out into Galilee. You've seen how people are reacting. I'm drawing the line in the sand. You need to understand what following me is all about. It's going to be costly. Right on the heels of this conversation, the Scripture says that Jesus, about a week later, takes some of them up. They go up toward Mount Hermon, and if you have that map, it's kind of up and off to the right, way up in the top corner. It's, it's away probably 35, 40 miles from Bethsaida. They go up there to, to Mount Hermon, and Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John to the top of the mountain, and there he has another prayer time. It's interesting to see these three in those extended prayer times. We always think of the disciples falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. But we often fail to see that they fell asleep here too. It's like every time something strategic is going on, these guys are sleeping. Peter, James, and John. You know, they just can't make it through a prayer meeting with Christ. I don't know if that's saying something to us about their spiritual life or something about Jesus' prayer life. It's probably a little bit of both. Because I don't think he was quick about it. But they're up on the top of this mountain, and they've gone to sleep, and all of a sudden they wake up and they see something amazing happen. Now, he's just taken these three with him. They're kind of like the inner circle. And I don't know that it's fair to say that Jesus picked favorites. Favorites kind of develop. And, and they're not favorites because, you know, he's partial. Favorites develop because there's a deeper affinity and unity of purpose. 
You know, who do you like to be with? Just stop and think about it. Do you like to, to be with people that are always getting under your skin? I mean, do you, do you just say, I can't wait to have coffee with so-and-so because they, they constantly irritate me. They're, they're always arguing with me. Everything I say, they've got an argument. I just love being with them. You know, or, or do you, you like to be people that, yeah, they're, they're great to be around. They're good friends. Or do you really like to be with people who are tracking with you? They're, they're, their heart is the same. You have conversations and it's like, yeah, yeah. You know, it's almost like the, uh, the, the kind of thing where, where you, you kind of know where each other's going almost before you go. Because you're tracking well. That's how favorites develop legitimately. Jesus is not picking these three out because, oh, I like you better than, than Matthew and, you know, all these other. It's, they're, they have focused on him. The twelve are significant. Don't downplay them. They're the ones, except for Judas, that are founding the church in the book of Acts. But Peter, James, and John had powerful roles in the future. James was the first one to die for Jesus. John lived to the end of the first century and was the longest one to finally write by a divine vision how it all ends. Peter was the, the, the bedrock and formed the, the leadership of the church in Jerusalem for many years. And so there's no question that these three... Uh, of all of the disciples, these three needed to have uh, this extra kind of exposure because of the roles that they would play in the future. And Jesus has taken them with Him to the top of this mountain for this time of prayer because He's drawing uh, close to His Father. The tide is beginning to turn. And I'm sure there were many questions. You know, one of the things that we err in is we impute omniscience to Jesus in the body on this earth, and that is not true. Jesus did not know the end from the beginning while He was walking the villages of Galilee. When He laid aside the attributes of deity, did not give them up as in terms of disowning them, but laid them aside and removed them from His access as He came in the Incarnation, Jesus Christ lived His life in dependence upon the Father and the empowerment and direction of the Holy Spirit just as He expects us to live. He did not have any more equipment than He has given to us. You cannot miss that in the Gospels, and I cannot overemphasize it without in any way detracting from His deity, if you take away the fact that Jesus lived as a man under the filling and empowering and leading of the Holy Spirit, you have removed from yourself the only example that you can hope to have. And you also excused yourself from all the responsibility that the Gospel lays upon you. Jesus Christ lived His life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as such... He lived in dependence upon the Father and daily direction. Now, it's very obvious that he knew a great deal of information when he was 12 years old and showed up in the temple. 
And it's also very obvious that in the wilderness experience at the beginning of his ministry, God laid out a lot of things for him. It's also obvious that Jesus had a sense of where this was going. But I think, my opinion, that it was on the Mount of Transfiguration that the Father for him solidified the turning point of the ministry and the fact that from this day forward, the cross is directly in your future. The mission now, you've proclaimed the good news, you've heralded the coming of the kingdom, you've healed the sick, you've even raised the dead. We find that at the end of the 8th chapter of Luke. You've cast out the demons, you've, you've made it clear who you are and what you're about. Now the moment has come to turn the focus of ministry to the cross. And it was on the Mount of Transfiguration that this pivotal point came. As he has explained to his disciples, this is what's going to happen. This is what's coming. He goes up to the mountain and, and all of this becomes clear to him as he is, in essence, fortified by the Father. And in that moment, the disciples wake up and they see that his face has somehow been changed and is glowing and his garments are glowing and, and he's glowing like like the sun. It's, it's phenomenal what they're beholding. And they see two people with him and they perceive that this is Moses and Elijah. Sometimes folks say, well, we know each other in heaven. Well, of course you will. You'll even know people you've never laid eyes on before. It's going to be instant knowledge. You're going to know as well as you're known. You're going to just see and just think, wow, there's Moses. Look at that. You know, hey, Mo, let's visit. Now, I don't know if you'll say that or not, but anyway. I mean, it's just going to be so obvious. And they, and they see there's Moses and Elijah. And this is significant because Moses is the law and Elijah is the prophets. These two figures represent all of Jewish history and all of the Old Testament revelation wrapped up in two individuals, the law and the prophets, of which Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of it. The, this, the symbolism and significance of these men being with him is not lost. And Peter and James and John are just looking at this scene and it's like amazing, wow. And then the scripture says a cloud formed. This is not moisture coming up out of the sea. This is not some rain cloud. A cloud forms around the top of the mountain, which is the cloud from the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory of God. Forms around the top of the mountain and it covers them. And they hear a voice coming out of the cloud saying this, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. And none other. That's not said, but it's implied. Listen to Him alone. And, and the disciples, suddenly the cloud begins to clear. Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus is standing there kind of back to normal. Peter's like, oh, what just happened? Why don't, why don't we build some tents and just kind of hang out here a while? This is wonderful. I just don't ever want to leave. You know, and Jesus, I, I'm interpolating here. Jesus says to them, in essence, I wanted you to see this. I wanted you to have no question in your heart who I am. I want you to know. Because in the days ahead, this vision will become very important to you. I wanted you to hear it from my Father. You have made the right choice in following me. 
And don't talk about what you've seen up here with other people. Just hold on to this vision for a while. Now this dramatic scene has occurred. They get down to the bottom of the mountain. And as they're coming down, you know, it's almost like Moses coming off the mountain, you know? He kind of gets down and there's, what is this clamor I'm hearing? What is going on? They're coming down to the mountain. The crowd has come back around the disciples because a father has brought his son who is possessed of a demon. And he says, you know, the demon throws him down and seizes him. And suddenly he screams and throws him into convulsions. He's foaming at the mouth. And, and Jesus comes down off this lofty experience into this scenario. The nine disciples are standing there like, we don't know. And this boy, the father is saying, he's just terribly beset. I've asked your disciples to heal him and they couldn't do a thing. Now, isn't it interesting that they were able to cast out demons just a little while before? But now, Jesus is up on the mountain. Peter, James, and John aren't there. And they're like, we don't, we don't know what to do. And the whole thing is an utter failure. And Jesus says, Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how Long shall I be with you and put up with you. Bring your son here. Now, Moses had a frustrated outburst. And it cost him the promised land. Peter was always having outbursts. And he was usually wrong. Paul had an outburst in the book of Acts and split up the missionary team. For good or for ill, however you want to look at that, that was, that, that was not the best thing. Jesus never had a frustrated outburst. He only said what he heard his father say. I'm not saying that Jesus did not have feelings. Nor am I saying that frustration, in a sense, was not a part of... I'm just saying to you, he did not spontaneously just say, Oh, good grief, you sorry, lousy people. What's the matter with you? He grabbed them, figuratively speaking, by the nape of the neck and shook them because he wanted to get their attention. He said, What is it going to take for you to get the message? How long are you going to be without faith? He said that to his disciples and the crowd. What is it going to take? Because the disciples could have expected in the same way as they had been out that the power of God would have been there for that moment. But they didn't get it. And Jesus, with all compassion having made his point, said, bring me the child. And as he was still approaching, the demon dashed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. 
But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. <laughs> Can you hear that? Can you see this scene? Okay, read my lips. Listen to me. Let these words sink into your ears. I mean, he's calling a time out. Look at me. Pay attention. Listen. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. This is very much on Jesus' mind. I am going to be crucified. I want you to be faithful. I don't want you to lose hope or vision. I want you to know. Listen to me. They didn't understand his statement. And it was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. They were afraid to ask him. It's almost like they didn't want to hear this thing and, and, and were resisting. And so their, their eyes were blind. And in the midst of this, an argument arose among them as to which might be the greatest. Can you see it? Jesus is focusing on the cross, and they're focusing on a kingdom. <laughs> okay, when do we get to set up the thrones? And who's going to get the right, and who's going to get the left? And Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, <clears throat> took a child and stood him by his side and said to him, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, this one is great. Now, in Jewish culture and society, a little child was the least significant person. Culturally. I'm not saying a mother's heart's not a mother's heart. That's true in all generations and all cultures. But in Jewish society, they did not place value on a person until they got to be older. For one thing, infant mortality and childhood diseases and stuff claimed a lot of lives. They really just did, they didn't want to invest, so to speak. A child was insignificant. They, they weren't old enough to work. They weren't productive. They might not live. I mean, it's a harsh way of looking at it, but it's a reality. And this is the cultural milieu in which Jesus ministered. And so, here are his disciples talking about which one of them is going to be the, the macho guy on the right and the left. And, and Jesus knows what's going on. And this is the first attitude correction he brings in this turning point. He says to a child, come over here, son, or come over here, daughter. Come to me. And he says to his disciples, do you see this little child? Unless, unless you value this child and become like him or her in your heart, unless you do that, you have no clue what the kingdom's about. 
It is not about who's great. It's about serving. It's about humility. It's about taking the place of least importance and receiving it with gratitude. And if you, and if you don't have that mindset, you have missed the point of the kingdom. Friends, we need to hear that this morning. In our hearts, we need to know that we are never more important than anyone else. And that we, were, we are always called to serve the person in front of us. No matter how insignificant, no matter how great, in human terms, we are always called to serve. And we are not more important than anyone. And, and let that set in. We do not have a right to have prejudice. We don't have a right to make class distinctions. We don't have the right to favor the wealthy and ignore the poor. We don't have the right to make any distinctions. All people are valuable. And the one who wants to be great in this world system has a problem. And, and the first thing we need to grapple with is, is that sense of humility. Well, this brought an interesting thing to John's mind, wanting to divert his attention, perhaps away from himself, I don't know. But John remembers this fellow that was out casting out demons. Now, see, this is all in this context. And John says, you know, I saw a fellow, we saw a fellow casting out demons in your name, and he's not one of us. Uh, and we tried to hinder him. What do, you, what do you think about that? And Jesus says to him, do not hinder him. <laughs> Don't hinder him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Again, I appreciate Linsky's insight here, because you will recall that Jesus in another occasion said, he who is not for me is against me. And Linsky wisely discerned that the difference in those two statements is one of them is looking at me and one of them is looking at you. From my heart, if I'm not for him, I'm against him when I assess myself. But when I assess you, if you're not against him, then I am to make the assumption you're for him. Judgment, we don't have the skills to make the fine-tuned judgment that is necessary to, to determine who's bona fide and who's not. Who's legit? And, you know, eventually, people in ministries or whatever kind of show themselves out. But Paul said to the Philippians, even for those who are openly, blatantly preaching the gospel out of strife and envy because they want to gain advantage. He said, I still praise God that the gospel's preached. And Jesus is saying in this situation, it is not your responsibility to stop somebody who's casting out demons in my name. Because God works in amazing ways and through the most unusual people. And, and we need to learn that lesson. 
I am so grateful that you don't have to be 100% correct to be useful to God. I am so grateful that you don't have to have everything right and your theology perfect before you can actually witness for Jesus Christ. And people get saved under the most amazing circumstances. And sometimes through the ministry of people that are just basically bonkers in in terms of any real understanding. My goodness, I go back every once in a while and read some of the first sermons I preached when I was 17 years old. And I'm so thankful I don't have to look at those people on a daily basis now. I said some of the dumbest things. And those were days of revival and people by the dozens and in some cases by the hundreds came down the aisles to receive Jesus Christ. And I think about the, the theological depth of the message and it's like, oh man, how did that happen? Well, because the Spirit of God was at work. It's amazing. And Jesus' messages, fellas, don't worry about the guy. I want you to focus on me and what's going on. But if somebody is out there doing something, you know, let them alone. Just let them go. Don't get concerned with that. And it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samarians to make arrangements for him And they did not receive him as he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. And his disciples, James and John, saw this. They said, Lord... Now, here's an amazing thing. James and John maybe have an out because they were up on the mountain when the other nine were trying to get rid of the demon. And so they they weren't down there to fail. You know, so they could have probably said to themselves, Oh, man, if we'd been down there, it would have been a different story. I mean, we we could have dealt with that. People are like that, you know. But here they're going through Samaria. Jesus goes out on your your map. He goes out toward the Mediterranean, down through Samaria, because he basically wants to approach Jerusalem on this occasion without a big fanfare. And he says, go through and, and, and make arrangements for us. And the Samaritans hated the Jews. And the Jews hated the Samaritans, by the way. It, it, was a, it was a mutual hatred, prejudicial racial hatred. Those Samaritan people had compromised. They're the ones that hung out in the land. They intermarried with other nations during the Babylonian captivity. And then when the Jews came back, they made it tough on them to rebuild Jerusalem. And, and, and the, the purebred Jews always felt like the half-breed Samaritans had sold them out and and, and uh, then they complicated each other's lives. I don't know what it is about people that carry grudges for generations. I will confess to you, I cannot relate to that. That just go, It's beyond my comprehension. I grew up in the South, and I can tell you there are towns in the South 150 years later that are still fighting the Civil War. And it's like, people, give it up, man. That was your great, great, great grandfather. I mean, just stop, will you? But they still... And, and I, and I kind of understand what it's like from observation, but I can't relate to it. And in the Middle East, they carried on for centuries. I mean, even today, they, they just hate each other, and they don't even know why. They just hate each other. 
And if you go back, if you go and try to figure out what really is going on, it's hard to figure out what really is going on. I mean, you can point to individual atrocities, but who shot first? I, it's just crazy. And there was hatred there. The Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. And, and it's obvious, the text makes it clear, it's obvious that Jesus is focused on Jerusalem. The, the incident with the Samaritan woman happened back in another earlier part of the ministry. And he already had dealt with her about Gerizim and Jerusalem and, you know, where you're supposed to worship God. And, and now, as, as these Jews are traveling through Samaria, they do not want them to stop. They don't want them to rest. They don't want them to stay. They want them to keep moving. Just get out of our country. And James and John said, I've got an idea, Lord. Let's call down fire from heaven and burn this whole town up. Man. Yeah, a little over the top. And, and Jesus says, you do not know what kind of spirit you're of. And I want to say to us, check your attitude. Check your attitude. Because when you're acting like this, you're of the wrong spirit. I wish, I mean, how much grief could have been spared in 2,000 years of church history? I mean, the, the Muslims hate Christians to this day because of the Crusades. Whoever thought you could win people to Christ and, and convert the world with an army? What were you thinking? Whoever thought that you could right the ills of this country by blowing up abortion clinics? What are you thinking? The kingdom of God is not about the sword. Judgment day is coming. God will deal with it. It is not now. This is a time of grace. This is a time of mercy. This is a day of opportunity. And listen to what Jesus says. <coughs> For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That's a powerful statement. Militancy will never win the day. The only thing that has a hope or chance of winning is love. And we need to be a people. Jesus is telling us something here. We need to be a people who are long on love and very slow to anger. And vengeance has no place in our lives. Getting even is God's problem. It's not ours. And so they were going along the road. And someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, Jesus is going through Samaria, and they won't let him stay there. And Jesus says, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Following me is going to be costly. Right now I'm homeless. 
Are you willing to be homeless for my sake in the kingdom? That's the cost. And he said to another, you follow me. But he said, permit me first to go and bury my father. Now there's all kind of commentary on what Jesus meant by that, whether the father was still living and he was saying, you know, well, I, I really need to go and take care of the family business so my dad passes on and then I'll have time. Jesus says something that sounds incredibly harsh. But he says, allow the dead to bury their own dead, the spiritually dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. You need to put me first. You need to put me first. Even in the face of your parents, even in the face of this impending death or whatever of your father, whatever it is, you need to go now and preach the kingdom. Another one said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first I need to go uh, say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, do you notice the turn that has come in the focus of Jesus' ministry? This is the pivotal, a year before the cross, this is the pivotal point. And Jesus is now defining in no uncertain terms what it means to be a follower because he is headed to the cross. And he says, if you're going to follow me, that's where it's going to lead. Now, do you recall what I read to you earlier? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And the essence of what Jesus means by that is it comes out in these three examples is this. In your life, I must be number one. There can be no question about your agenda or your priorities. Some people say, oh, as soon as I get my education, I'll be able to devote more time. And then someone says, well, as soon as I get my business started or get my career underway, I'll have more time. Someone says, as soon as I get my children raised, I'll have more time to invest in the kingdom. Someone else says, as soon as I retire, I'll have more time to devote to, to the service of the Lord. Someone else says, I've got all kinds of needs in my life right now that demand my attention, and I've got, to, I've got to take care of those before I'm free to follow Christ. And in every situation, Jesus says, I must be your first priority. I must be number one. When Jesus said, unless you are willing to take up your cross and die daily, it's amazing how we've spiritualized that in, well, I've got this this whiny, namsy, pamsy husband that's not saved and he's always given me grief. That's my cross to bear. Somebody says, I, I've got this, uh, this teenager that's off the wire and that's my cross. And somebody says, I've got this uh, problem in my life. And that, No, those are not crosses. They may factor into the equation, but they are not the cross. The cross is the instrument that you die on. It is the instrument where you die to your ambitions, to your expectations. It's the place where you die to your agenda. It is the place where you meet the Lord Jesus Christ and He becomes the number one focus of your heart and soul and being. And Jesus is now making that line in the sand very plain. 
saying to his disciples in no uncertain terms, this is the moment of decision. I'm going to a cross. And those who follow me will go to a cross. I'm laying down my life for you. I expect you to lay down your life for me. And in return for those who do, friends, Jesus says, I will always be with you. I will never leave you. I will work through you. Fruit, the corn of wheat that falls to the ground and dies, fruit will come out of your life like you never imagined. I will fill you with good things. Your life will be joy and blessing. And afterwards you will hear the voice of my Father and me, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter the kingdom that I have prepared. This was the pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry when he set his face to go to Jerusalem and clearly define the cost of discipleship. And I want to ask you this morning, in your heart of hearts, have you clearly embraced the cost of discipleship? Is Jesus Christ number one in your life? Are there no contestants for his position? Are you willing to do whatever he asks, whenever he asks? Because he is the Lord and the Master. And as the Father made clear on the mountaintop to Peter, James, and John, this is my Son. Listen to him. Father, I pray that you would uh, drive home to us deeply the message of your truth and that we would be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.